Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Will Hamilton. It's December 4th, 2019. We're at Will's home in McMinnville. Uh, just so we have that for the record. It's all just been a vehicle for taking me to where I am in life. And that it's really more of an adventure that way. Um, but I was a server, was in high school, had some friends at a fine dining restaurant. This is in Hagerstown, Maryland. And uh, they were teaching me about wine and did a course on Bordeaux. And, um, you know, that was all pretty fascinating. So as I learned how to be a server, you know, this part of it was about wine service and that aspect of what was going on was, you know, immediately pretty intriguing. My family drank wine. We were not an alcohol-free home, and so there was always wine around the table and stuff. But, you know, until that happened and I got into my late teens, into college, I wasn't really drinking much wine. But I continued being a server, and so during my college years, I actually started to see Oregon wine um, and got into drinking Pinot Noir ahead of drinking other varieties. Um, which was kind of a random progression for me. Um, and so I was pretty keen on getting a job in wine by the time I was like 20 years old. And actually got an offer from Stephen Carey uh, at Yamhill Valley my junior year. And I was, you know, obviously going to go back and finish my senior year. So I was like, I can't come work the harvest, but I appreciate it. And, you know, later realizing the the summer work in the wineries was hard to come by. So, uh, so anyway, didn't do anything about it. Followed my girlfriend to D.C., worked for a wine importer there, which is a strictly French book. Um, and this was in, you know, 2004 when there was a, a pretty good pushback against French wine in a lot of markets. Um, but there were some cool things to learn there. We we're coming out, you know, showing the 2000 Bordeaux vintage, which, you know, is historically probably the best one since 1982. And so they were really excited about this and, you know, learning from some professionals some of the aspects of what made great wines great was was happening for me you know directly after college uh, but i hated selling wine uh, i hated driving around everywhere in the dc metro i mean it was really miserable i lasted about three months <laughs> and now that's what i do um, it's really funny to kind of have come full circle with it because i spend most of my time selling wine now I'm, i make all the wines that i produce but but most of my effort and time and thought is geared toward moving and selling wine um, in order to continue doing the things that I really love, uh, spending time in the cellar and in the vineyards. Um, so anyway, it was kind of a circumlocution there. Uh, stayed in D.C. for a while because my girlfriend was there and then moved out here in 2005. And ironically, one of the wines we sold where I was in school, Erath, Oregon Pinot Noir, is where I ended up working in 05, and I was all worried about that because I was like, that place is too big, you know. I was like, I'm going to be an apprentice, you know. Oregon, great opportunity, and I had been intrigued by the Northwest for a long time, so it was kind of, you know, unique, but I had some friends that were taking postgraduate work, so we all moved to Portland together. I got a job at Erath and commuted from Portland um, and uh, met some great people. It was a miserable harvest. Um, 
there, um, thinking in hindsight. But at the time, I, I, I didn't know. <laughs> I was just like, this is awesome, you know? And the guys I was working with were my age and had been there since high school. Um, and so it was a really cool group. We did the night shift. And, uh, you know, the technology part of winemaking, the physicality of it was always intriguing to me. I think it's one of the reasons why I was kind of drawn toward production anyway. Um, and so did that first vintage at Erath and, uh, you know, had a good enough time that I was like, okay, I'm going to, you know, try to pursue this. And I was like, for sure, I'll get a job wherever I get a harvest gig, you know. And, of course, they didn't need any um, more employees. So did some bottling with them and stuff. And in hindsight, I'm, I'm so fortunate that I didn't end up getting a job there because I think it would have been a bit of a... Um, one-dimensional dead-end position. Um, I ended up getting a job with Laurent Montelieu at Northwest Wine Company, which at the time was located in McMinnville, and that's really where I cut my teeth and got an education in winemaking. Um, I spent almost six years working with Laurent and five vintages, um, and you know there wasn't too many pe there, there weren't too many people in Oregon in the early aughts who were doing the kind of things that Laurent was doing, mm -hmm. um, and continuing along like he's continued to push the envelope. I was just joking with Ben Castile about this, and he's like, "Man, I think that guy deserves like a lifetime achievement <laughs> award or something." And I'm like, "He he already has d deserved it, you know." <laughs> But, uh, you know, it was a crazy time in Oregon. It was kind of that second wave. And I've heard Laurent tell, like, the basic history of, you know, the Oregon wine industry as he sees it. And so now I've been a part of, like, the last 25% of that. Um, so there is some things I've seen change. But in the early aughts, you know, we were a custom wine growing facility. And all these people who had vineyards they had planted in the late 90s were like, I want my own brand. And that's what we were doing. We were bringing that to life. We had probably 30 different clients. I did all the finishing work, so we were doing around 90 SKUs there. And we also bottled for a bunch of outside clients, which um, is now being done by Castile Custom Bottling. And the demand for that service never, ever went away. We just turned it into the mobile services. <laughs> and, um, and so it's kind of come full circle. We were doing that over at the, the old pie factory, which is now... Um, uh, Oregon Wines, OWS, mm, Oregon Wine sure. Storage, uh, or, yeah, Services and Storage. But uh, anyway, so I, you know, my, my experience was with kind of a big producer, professionally run place. We had a lot of different toys and technology, and that's just what I thought wineries were, you know. <laughs> They were pretty big and lots of stuff. And um, because we bottled all these wine for outside clients, I met some really cool people and it ended up being a wonderful networking opportunity. Um, but I think more than anything else, I got to learn the craft in a, from someone who had been trained professionally. Uh, and I really value in my experience having worked mostly under professionals. Um, and that's really how I've kind of come to you know build my physical skill set. Aside from that, you know, um, the journey of, uh, you know, wine style, what, what we want to do in wine, how we view cool climate, viticulture, and wine growing, all those things, those are evolving philosophies, you know. It's not like I, I feel one particular way about it, and it changes more quickly now <laughs> than it did when I got into the biz. When I started my brand, it was because I was like, ah, I have an opinion about style. You know, and that, then I was like, okay, I, I know enough about how to execute some of this stuff, but 
you know, for what kind of end. And, and when that happened, um, you know, I was like, okay, I'm willing to invest my own money in starting my little brand and kind of growing it from there. Um, you know, the more more than the physical stuff, which is what I was really into, and you know, running equipment and forklifts and filtration and all this other stuff. Um, Laurent had his hands in vineyards all over the Northwest. I mean, we worked with more than a hundred different vineyard sites during the five vintages that I was there. Uh, and that included some stuff on Red Mountain. You know, he was getting cabbed from Clipson. And, um, yeah, I didn't drive out to these places, you know. It was still like the fruit showed up and we sort of <laughs> talked about it. Um, but, you know, as I worked with him, I did spend some more time out in certain vineyard sites. And more than anything else, as I got into being more of an assistant winemaker and production manager, um, you know, following the evolution of these products um, and sort of finding preference for certain areas was a big part of, um, you know, leading me into kind of where I am now in terms of my journey, at least locally, which is really had preference for Eola Amity Hills uh, vineyard sites that we worked with in terms of the wines they produced. Um, and so that, that kind of all started to happen as a result of all the different stuff we were working with and so I could kind of find my preference and then going backwards learning more about, you know, why, why it is that I think that, you know, we, we get those tones in wines, etc. But, um, you know, going into the philosophy of all that kind of stuff, and we talk a lot about terroir and what it means and soil types. You know, this map is totally based around the idea that we have different soil types, and you know, you'll hear producers say, "Well, what do you think is the best soil to produce, you know, this wine or whatever?" I, I don't think there's any discussion about terroir if we're not talking about humans. Um, you know, human intention, human design, human uh, goal, stylistic goal, mm -hmm. uh, all those things, like you can't just say, well, it was, came from Shea Vineyard, you know, so it must, it must be a good Pinot Noir. Um, I just don't, I don't think it really is that simple, and, and I see that more and more here, which is there are producers that, you know, I value and trust more than vineyard sites, and, um, you know, the fabric of the business that I'm running now is absolutely the relationships that I have with my growing partners. Mm -hmm. You know, that is not something that I like. You, you go into a restaurant and start clicking the boxes and say, this is the vineyard site I want to get some Pinot Noir from and I'll take some of this and some of this. It doesn't really work like that. It's, it's a consequence of, you know, what you've seen, done, people you've met. And so, the, again, the people in, in my experience have really shaped where I've come and, and how that's all worked out and I agree with you there's a really lovely fabric of, of humans that are that are in Oregon and when you're in an industry for a little while and it seems like there's people who are coming from all over the world to get involved with it that you know it's it, there must be something appealing about it you know I already was enjoying my work here before um, you know, getting the feeling that uh, we were we were in such a unique place mm -hmm. in the, what we call the new world. But um, and anyway, I, I continue to believe that the Willamette Valley, as a cool climate wine growing region, is a very special place. Not just for for grapes, but for a lot of other things. Mm -hmm. um, probably more unique and more moderated than most growing regions anywhere in the world. So. 
I wouldn't be surprised if some consortium from Asia says, yes, we will buy, you know, that 1,200-acre track of land in the Yola Amity Hills because $70 million is chump change, you know? <laughs> and there is no better place on the planet to own agriculture land than, than right there. Um, yeah, I uh, like I said, I've, I felt really fortunate to, to get in with a professional like Laurent, really shaped kind of my, my stance. I worked at Evening Land Vineyards in 2011, that's where I met Ken and Erica, uh, and that was really for me, I'd done some, um, I probably didn't, I kind of skipped over this part on my little journey, but when I left Northwest Wine Company in 2011, I helped a friend, Corey Morris, continue to run a business called Willamette Crossflow. Um, which was helped started by Kevin Chambers, who's an, uh, one of those other guys. I don't know if you guys have interviewed mm -hmm. Kevin, but he's you know someone in our industry who's at the very forefront in, in terms of where, where we're going and, and having vision for what we can do here. Um, so anyway, he had invested in this business, and I was pretty good with running these cross flows, and they were cost prohibitive for wineries, and Corey had kind of gotten to the point where his business grew. So he talked me into joining him and doing that work, which I did for like four years. Um, and that's where I like burst out of my bubble a little bit, where like I had been with this great producer, we made a lot of wine, a lot of different wine, you know, big volume, big price, you know, kind of running the spectrum. Um, and then I would take these machines around to these little garages and stuff, you know, all over the place in the gorge and Woodenville, Washington, and all over the Willamette with some of the best producers. Um, and that's where I really started to realize, like, there is no one particular business model that represents a winery. You know, it's it, there's a lot of people doing it in different ways, and they make they make it work in different ways, or, or maybe they're not making it work in different ways. Um, and, uh, and it gave me a tremendous amount of confidence that I had learned a lot more than I realized and had a skill set that would be translatable in, in ways that perhaps I hadn't realized yet. Um, and I ended up walking more vineyards doing that job because I had a lot of time while machines were running at estate producers and so hiked around all kinds of vineyards, talked with a lot of producers and really started to kind of develop this sense of style, you know, I, at, at one point I, I believed that I was tasting more unreleased wines in the Willamette Valley than, than anybody. Um, and a lot of that stuff, you know, we are supposed to keep fairly confident mm -hmm. and um, you know and, and I do value that but it's interesting to see some of the technology that gets used around the valley and you know a lot of people don't want to be very transparent about what they do and so I carry this burden around of information which is you know having personally executed a lot of this stuff for people and I'm not talking about bad stuff I'm just talking about winemaking and and you know there's a lot of banter about you know Oregon is a very conscientious growing industry but I sometimes feel like there's a lot of uh, vocabulary, terminology that gets thrown around that is deceptively misleading, deceiving, and, and frankly is not true. And I happen to have a very strong, you know, s perspective on, on some of that stuff. Um, so while I was doing that, obviously we didn't filter wine during harvest. I worked uh, vintage at Evening Land in 2011. It was still a Tarlov-driven kind of company at that time, and then ended up coming back in 2012 and working there again. Uh, at which point he had left, and Isabel uh, Meunier and her partner um, Greg—is that right? 
Yeah, I think Greg. He had come in and, you know, they had kind of revamped things, so it was a very different kind of environment. But it was that moment in 2012, walking block 12 at the top of Seven Springs at sunrise, you know, with my friend Ryan Hannaford, who was the vine vineyard manager, and talking with his crew picking, and I was like, this, this is what I'm going to do. Mm -hmm. you know, that's when I was finally like, this is the inspiration point. Um, you know, having grounded out in the industry for the better part of a decade, you know, and, and kind of learning skills and stuff, but really realizing, like, no, I think this is kind of what, what my life's going to be about. Um, and so I started my brand the next year, and, you know, Ken and Erica invited me up to their place because um, they were kind of, you know, at a point where they were trying to make a, a fair bit of wine, mm -hmm. and, and just doing it with the two of them and a little bit of, you know, volunteer labor was going to be a lot. So they were like, you can make your wine here and you can help us out. And we did that for five years. Um, and so again, you know, working with professionals, there's no question the stylistic influence that Ken and I both learned at Evening Land, working with Dominique LaFon and some, you know, Ian Birch, who's now with uh, Archery, and obviously Isabel leading, leading the stylistic ship there. Um, those were big, big influences on me in terms of what did I what I wanted to achieve with Pinot Noir, uh, or what I what I thought you could achieve with Pinot Noir, and and what sort of methods you might choose to use in order to achieve those goals, and uh, you know it's kind of the the aha moment. Mm -hmm. um, and I always we made really sound wines at Northwest Wine Company, um, but we didn't always make the wines that had the most expression. Mm -hmm. um, we did a. Uh, I think they did it again recently. They, they do what they call the cellar crawl. And, you know, it's essentially like all these folks who were, you know, in the 90s were really making shit happen. So, you know, Laurent had started Willa Kenzie Estate in 92, Steve Dorner and the Christum family in 92, Archery Summit, you know, 90. That's when, like, these big estates, mm -hmm. you know, Druin had been here for three years. This is the second wave of organs are real thing. The Druin family bought some land and we are going big. You know, we've got money to invest and we're going to go and do this and um, and so you know Ken Wright and Lynn Penarash who I think was at Rex Hill at the mm -hmm. time she was um, Steve Dorner the Castiles who which even at that point Ben was really already taking over for uh, for Terry uh, so I had met them early on we used to bottle wine for the Castiles and Ross back and all these people and so anyway it was like I didn't quite understand these guys were like the all-stars you know I mean these are like the people that are like really the most professional leading the charge for growers and uh, and producers and and taking it into the national market and getting serious serious prices and serious recognition for the wines, you know. Um, anyway, so they did the cellar crawl where we traded fruit, and that was like my first vintage with Laurent. And so we got to work with the southeast block of Bethel Heights, which I'm like, I can't even believe they convinced them to give any of that up. You know, I mean, it's just like, there's not that much of it, you know, it's 77 planting. And then we got Eileen, which arguably, I mean, I like Jesse a lot and Marjorie when it's good, but like Eileen might be the best part of the Christmas state in terms of overall balance. Um, and then Laurent, who had been doing all this work for Premier Pacific, you know, we made all the wines for PPV. They had a number of different company names over the years, but we got the choice blocks of Rose Rock, Zena Crown, and Willakaya, which at the time they didn't even have a name for, was Eola Hills. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so he worked, we, we got some blocks of Willakaya that we traded. So three of the five wines were Eola Amity Hills, and then we had Leah's Vineyard, which is a really unique site, a lot of different soil types there. It's kind of an alluvial spill off the Chehala Mountains. 
Um, and then Abbott Claim, which is now uh, part of the, uh, uh, what do they call the Angela project. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, anyway, the, the Leas and the, and again, my opinion on winemaking is so much different now that when I look back on some of the things that we did and some of the chemistries that I saw, I'm just like, you know, it, it, I can't even <laughs> believe it. And I didn't know back then, but, um, you know, it, when you look at it in the framework of a single style, which we were still doing, the vibrancy and, and power and sense of minerality and freshness that we got in the Eileen and the Southeast Block mm -hmm. and to an extent, Willick, I was still young then, mm -hmm. uh, was so much different than the Abbott Claim, which is a classic Savannah Ridge, Willikensee soil site, and Leah's, which, uh, you know, is in really the hot pocket as far as I'm concerned. And so you had these two wines, which are really flabby kind of alcohol. And 06 was a tough year. You know, flabby, pretty hot, you know, just not at all the kind of tone that I would go for. And in having that revelation, I was like, well, these three are really amazing. Um, and that was that was early, and, and they just got done doing this again, actually, where they did a really big yeast experiment, which was really cool to see what sort of native yeast would stay. But, uh, yeah, when I started with Laurent, they were just getting the sub-appellations complete. So I think Dundee Hills was 05, and then in 06, the other ones fell, maybe not McMinnville. Um, and, and we were having that discussion with customers. You know, that was like the first thing that I got involved with, was really talking about how these different areas influence wine quality. And, um, and again, I was fortunate enough to work with so many sites that looking at that palette of color gives you the opportunity to choose which kind of colors you really want to work with. Um, and, it, you know, Laurent had his hands in so many pies that, it, you know, it was just interesting to have that opportunity in hindsight and look at what, you know, the high quality sites were doing in terms of yield and uh, farming. And, you know, of course, he's a big proponent of biodynamics, which one of the first guys I met working in Northwest was Chris Williams. We were finishing all the Brooks wines then. And, you know, Chris, you know, was very generous with his time and knowledge and we're filtering Riesling. And I didn't know much about Riesling. And that was amazing working with Highland. And Riesling in 2006, you know, um, you know, helping work on wines that eventually ended up in the White House was like, oh, that's kind of cool. You know, I moved all those wines when they were liquid form. Um, but uh, but Chris, you know, took me up to what is now the Brooks Estate, and he had me help him out. I would go up there and help stir biodynamic preps. And the first time I went up there, uh, you know, we were doing the, the 501, the horn manure spray. And it, you can't really go spray, you know, aqueous solutions out in the rain. It just doesn't work because it, it doesn't stay on the foliage. And uh, it was pouring down rain everywhere but on that vineyard where he was spraying. I mean, this was a real scenario. And like, as soon as I left and drove down the hill, I got literally 50 yards past the southern, you know, the, the smallest point of the vineyard and it was like pouring. But the whole time he was, I would stir and he was driving around trying to get this spray on because it was the right moment. And, uh, and Laurent was really into that too. And even at the time, back in 06, 07, he would still go out and do all those ATV sprays personally. And, um, you know, that was, those were things that in that time period were just, people were just scratching the surface mm -hmm. of around here. And more and more there's, again, a growing movement toward that, that style of conscientious farming. Mm -hmm. I love to talk about that stuff. I think it's really confusing when you start talking about chemicals and stuff with consumers because they really have no idea what you're talking about. So then you start using really arbitrary words like, well, we don't use harsh chemicals. 
harsh enough to kill all the shit that we don't want, <laughs> but, but they're not harsh. <laughs> you know, it's like I use SO2 as a preservative in wine. They've been doing that for a few thousand years. And it's pretty low impact. You know, the Italian stuff I get is at the high end of the purity spectrum. If you eat a bag of it, you will asphyxiate and it will be very harsh, you know? <laughs> you hear what I'm saying? Like, and this is where, you know, what kind of language are we really using? When we talk about organics, we're talking about microthiols. Well, that's sulfur, you know? Yeah, do you have to spray it, like, in a backpack? Probably not. You're probably gonna have somebody go drive around in a tractor with rubber tires, you know, using diesel. That's a real thing. It really happens. You know, that tractor was manufactured in Japan. So I, I prefer more transparency and just to tell things, you know, I, the, the one thing that annoys me is the growing discrepancy between how we're marketing products and what we're actually doing to achieve making beverage. And you can't forget that we are just, we're, we're making beverages. I mean, we're not trying to have fruit that we take to the market and sell. Um, Chardonnay, that we make good Chardonnay wine from, doesn't really deserve a place on the table for eating. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not, it's not that delicious. So, um, anyway, uh, so my journey then, you know, with, you know, working Ken and Erica, uh, I did four years with a company called Pacific Winemaking. Mm -hmm. So when I stopped working for Corey, uh, I got this job in January of 14. Uh, again, doing technical sales, backup kind of side supply side for the wine industry, and it allowed me the freedom to continue pr producing my brand. Uh, and it was kind of a prerequisite for me doing that job. It was a work from home sales job. And, uh, and the main thing that we had success with was uh, Diom closures. Uh, Diom is, you know, TCA-free, micro ag cork. These are examples of them. Uh, big, big uh, company that owns them in France, the Enio Group. Um, but they're going to be the largest cork supplier in the world. And, and we grew the business here pretty dramatically because a lot of producers here are making premium wine. And this is where you use these kind of products is for a consumer base that might actually call you out. <laughs> Everybody's like, oh, we don't have any problems with these $8 bottle of wine. Like, we don't get much feedback about bad bottles from cheap cork. I'm like, no, you don't. <laughs> glug, glug, glug. You know, it's like, who cares? But we're talking about, you know, nuanced, subtle beverages from, you know, consumers that are drinking world-class wine. So there's a lot of con conscientious producers trying to do that here. It's amazing when you go to a premium wine store anywhere in the country, if they have a Pinot Noir section. Uh, Oregon will almost be equal to California in terms of the Pinot Noirs on the shelf. And, um, you know, that's the effort of so many of our, our industry, you know, these people I'm talking about mm -hmm. who've created a market for, like, my brand to exist and I can come into a market and actually expect people to take me seriously for making Oregon Pinot Noir. Like, the battle these guys had in the 70s and 80s to have any recognition for what they did, it's, it's amazing to think about, all while not having any of the support system that we have now, labs. Mm -hmm. You know, what's a lab? <laughs> you know, where am I going to figure out how much free SO2 I have in this? Wine. It's like, well, you either do it yourself 
or don't do it. Mm -hmm. And so there was a scale which was required, but you know, more and more having worked in the supply side, and I'm always kind of in the camp where like, I don't think small means good. So I hate when people are like, oh, I'm just a small producer, you know? It's like, well, usually you need more margins to produce good quality and otherwise, you know, doesn't mean good, but um, well, you know, you don't need to have a, any kind of lab equipment. Um, you know, you can buy some fruit from super professionally farmed vineyard for a couple thousand dollars and, you know, they might even be willing to sell you just one ton of grapes or 1.5 tons. Well, that'll fit in my, you know, macro fermenter and then I'll have three barrels and I'll buy a new one because, like, everyone has the, all the same nice new barrels around, whatever. Uh, you know, and age it for a while, and then, well, it's kind of getting a little wonky, whatever. Well, I'll just call the cross flow guy up, and I'll put it through the cross flow, and then I'll call the bottling guy up, and, you know, we'll put it through the um, bottling line. And I'm a professional winemaker now, you know, three, probably 80% of the work that was important, I, I didn't do. You know, I'm talking about like 75% being grape growing. <laughs> you know, 5% is like uh, managing a fermentation. And then, you know, the rest of it is like the tinkering and finishing and, you know, the sort of nudging in terms of balance and things like that. And, and then instead it's just like, well, I'm, I'm hands off. So, <laughs> you know, it's all good. I'm hands off. <laughs> anyway. Um, so yeah, that journey, you know, again, I finally quit my day job last year. Uh, again, my brand was in 13. I started, but I over vintage all the wines I make, meaning that I, I age them past the, the next harvest. So I didn't bottle any wines until 2015. And of course, that first year of sales is what it is. Um, I wasn't doing that for a living or focusing a lot of energy on it. So I slowly sold some wine enough to, you know, in year three, I could pay for some grapes and supplies and stuff. Of course, my overhead was bartered. So, you know, I had pretty low expense inputs. Plus, I did all my winemaking personally, so that's helpful. Um, and worked with some, you know, professionals that we already have like a great idea in mind about how we want to do things together. And, you know, that partnership was strong and, and continues to grow for me. Um, but I, I've started to get into wholesaling my own wines and that gives me a lot of leverage in the state to, uh, you know, go actually affect my business. And I don't do anything for marketing and what I do particularly other than work really hard to have good partnerships in the marketplace where people see my wines at restaurants and at retailers who are people that you can respect. And so they say, okay, well, if, if violin is a good enough product for, you know, being at this restaurant, then perhaps I'll go schedule a tasting with Will and then you know when, when I have personal sit downs with people we, we usually have a good time. Mm -hmm. um, so selling my wine is um, you know again a, something that I do personally right now I'm still this year I did almost 1400 cases but um, yeah it's uh, it's a fragile kind of network that provides this little economy um, and uh, and I feel that all the time even though I feel forward momentum and I never think about not being successful but um, you know it's uh, it always feels like it's just a little fragile and I you know may maybe that would lead us into you know more questions or more discussion but um, you know as far as the the now thing goes you know I, I, I feel more and more like I wonder how much more fractured we can make the organ wine community in terms of 
producers and brands and things and for those for everyone to have success is it is it possible is there enough room in the marketplace to continue to absorb new brands um, you know or are we going to just see this sort of it will get to a point like for every brand that gets started another one just decides to close their doors mm -hmm. um, I, I worry a lot about how much wine is sitting all over the country in warehouses from vintages like 12 and 13 and 14 and people come out here and they start drinking new wines but these you know there's actually a lot of wine out there and that all seems fine until people are tired of paying to store it and then they flush it onto the marketplace mm -hmm. and devalue all the effort that we've put in over all these years. So we have to be able to get good money for our wines, you know, and that discussion of transparency, it's like, let's talk about migrant labor. Let's talk about what it really takes mm -hmm. to get fruit off the vine and to do quality work in the farm and, um, and whether we're really supporting that economy in a positive way, whether we're kind of, uh, you know, respecting it in the right way um, and I, I often feel like it is certainly ignored when it comes to the marketing of the product so if that's really the attitude that we're bestowing upon our customers then what are we talking about mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. so that's not going to change we've got small vineyards here we want to farm quote conscientiously and, and handle cool climate grapes I mean Pinot Noir is as you know as it's stereotypically talked about it it is a, a relatively delicate grape variety and you know the difference a couple of days makes is huge and if you run you know machine harvesting through that's cool but you better be ready to process it like that day or the next day you better be handling things for, and I've done a lot of that stuff especially with Laurent uh, different styles you know and um, I, I feel super lucky to work with vineyard sites and growers who are so dedicated to what they're doing that I can I can craft wines in a very very low um, low technology way. Um, you know all these things I've done and, and worked on in different levels. It's like you know in 2019 I think I got as close as I've gotten to having the kind of wines that I think are what is going to make Oregon unique and special. Um, and not just ripe Pinot Noir from the New World, which I, f I find increasingly offensive, and I, I see increasingly more of it, and for more money. I'm just like, so I pay extra for syrup, sweet, uh, you know, I mean, this is really happening all over the place. And I think a lot of producers are celebrating it. I'm very live and let live. I think a lot of customers love it. That's cool. So all I have to do is continue to be real, um, you know, streamlined in terms of style and what I want to do and then find customers and kind of go backwards mm -hmm. with it. Because um, I'm not one of the people who's going to go out there and say, well, I don't know if you heard, but the planet's a little warmer. And uh, we might as well throw in the fucking towel, you know. There's a lot of vines out there, but it's too hot. Mm -hmm. I mean, what kind of an attitude is that? Uh, first of all, I think there's a lot of young vines, and young vines definitely have a different impact when it comes to, you know, how an individual growing season will impact the wines. Um, now a lot of us are working with 25 year old vines all the time you know a lot of those plantings in the 90s are now 20 years old and everybody's got more mature vines mm -hmm. and i think we're seeing more consistency there for sure more maturity in terms of farming all those things are happening um, but i think our growing seasons keep getting moved a little earlier more so than we're seeing like dramatic shifts in overall degree days and things like that. I mean, Greg Jones put out some great stats saying, yeah, well, 16 was a cooler growing season than 14 or 15. And I'm like, 
I sure didn't feel that way. Well, you look at it, it rained every day in October. We were done harvest by the 15th of September, so if you include the stats of October, yes, that, that whole period looks like it's cooler than 14, 15. The period that applies to my grapes, <laughs> those 110 days, felt super hot mm -hmm. in 16. I mean, I picked for the first time ever and only time in 15 years Pinot Noir in August that year. Uh, and I'm glad I did. The wine has snap and freshness, and those are things that I'm looking for in Pinot Noir. Um, you know, that sense of nerviness, tension, um, and I think, I think we can still achieve that. I think it's just we have to be a little more diligent in a lot of different ways. Um, but yeah, I, I'm not, uh, I'm also not in the camp that thinks, well, if it doesn't taste like blah, 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 then we haven't been successful. Oregon's a pretty unique place. The Willamette Valley within that's really unique. I mean, I know you guys are kind of looking at Oregon as a bigger picture, and of course we're here in the heart of the valley, but um, you know, the Willamette Valley is a very unique growing region within Oregon. Um, when you look at the Umpqua Valley, again, very different story altogether, and I've, I've done some work for Earl, uh, and have so much respect for, for what Dr. Jones has done down there with Tempranillo and bringing it to the forefront. You know, having worked with Seven Springs, he was like, that was the first time anybody planted Gamay Noir in the 1980s, really? That was the first time, you know, it's like mind-boggling. You're like, what have we been doing? You realize how small the industry is uh, and how relatively youthful. So um, it'll be interesting to see uh, as, as we get more mature vines, whether people are producing more consistent or, you know, again, if, if it, we just kind of find that, that sweet spot. When, when Laurent was trying to produce good examples of 18 and $20 wines in 2005, everybody else was like, how do I get 45 and $50 for these wines, you know? Uh, and now it's not 18, 20, it's, you know, 13 to 15, you know, how are we gonna do that now? Um, and that, that's like, they're diverging paths at the same time. Um, but I feel that way in general about the wine industry. I mean, if you look at the, the high-end Pinot Noir industry in California, it's growing at a faster rate than the high-end Pinot Noir industry in the Willamette Valley. If between Sonoma and Sonoma mm -hmm. Coast and you know, even the Anderson Valley and what's going on there now. We're all competing for you know kind of the same customers, I think, nationally, so, so we'll see. And of course, you know, it's people like they're like, well, I'm glad you guys are duking it out in there. I've been spending time in Beijing. You know what I'm saying? Like, what's the next emerging market? We've got about, what, 320 million here now? Is it 350? Something like that. Yeah, so I, I don't know how many millions of those are wine drinkers, but uh, it's not 300 million because that's, that's about a third of the population of China. And if that becomes a big market, then they've just tripled the number of wine consumers that the United States has. That's going to be where the next emerging market is. And I don't think they can replicate what we do in the Willamette Valley. I mean, I'm in the camp with Ken Wright believing that we have something super special here. How we protect it, how we, uh, you know, cultivate a positive growth in our little economy here, a uh, different, different story. But um, anyway, we, we made a lot of wines from Southern Oregon uh, when I was with Laurent. I have a tremendous respect for what's going on down there. And I think it's a completely different conversation about <laughs> viticulture and wine growing. And uh, if they continue to get the same kind of professional attention that, that this area got a long time ago, man, the sky's the limit for what they can do with quality down there. And there's already a good handful of producers who are, who are showing that off. Um, and I, you know, 
If I weren't in McMinnville, I would want to live in Lyle, Washington, and be a gorge producer. Man, I love it out there. It's it's amazing. Mm -hmm. And I think, again, when you look at, you know, I talk about moderation being good for cool climate vinifera. You know, a lot of times you're like, oh, the Ayola Hills are they? Is it cooler down there? I'm like, not really. It's it's just not as much swing. You know, it's a more steady, mm -hmm. uh, and we see you know cooler nighttime temperatures, but also you know it doesn't get. Uh, especially at high elevation, I think it's actually staying much warmer at night. So, you know, the, the low pockets in the Amhill Carlton are the ones that have this huge swing. Um, anyway, it's, it's fascinating. And of course, you know, we think we have this thing understood and, you know, the next thing changes all that. 19 was a good reality check. It was more like 2013. Uh, which again as a first vintage was a little tricky for, for my brand, but I lived through 2007 20, 20, and 2010 and um, you know, I think 2011 has shown us all that some of these vintages that seem really marginal at the time uh, and I was in love with the wines we made at Evening Land as we were making them. I was like this amazing uh, and way better than the 12s, you know, and of course the 12s got like the best score ever for an Oregon <laughs> wine. That's how you know. Uh, the uh, if it's if the press says it's a good vintage, don't buy it. And if they rail it, then it's probably one to put in the cellar and, and collect. Um, I don't know. I I think we can produce balanced wines every year. And again, it's not because of a place. It's because of intention mixed with great farming and intention and all those things. And probably more inspired now than I've ever been uh, because of the the people I'm working with and uh, what we're trying to achieve and you know the actual enthusiasm that we're that we believe we can achieve something which is worthwhile um, you know and I that, that's kind of the premise of what I'm doing like quality is what's driving me here you know it's not well, if I were to buy that 45,000 gallons of bulk wine on wine business tomorrow and, um, you know, get a fancy brand made up and push it through these six markets in the southeast, like maybe I'll make 200 grand, you know, mm -hmm. that's, a, that's a totally awesome thing. I hope someone does that. Um, but that's not at all what is inspiring for me about this industry anymore. Um, and getting to work directly with partners in a city like Portland, which has a really uh, wonderful food and beverage scene, um, you know, bringing wine directly to customers and having that partnership and, and really cultivating something that is, is unique to the Northwest and, and a special thing. It's, uh, that's been really inspiring for me too. Um, you know, makes me want to keep getting better at, at what I do mm -hmm. and, um, yeah, finding, finding customers who are happy about it. But so I'm curious, uh, going back to the kind of the beginning of your story, you, you, you mentioned kind of seeing Oregon wines on the marketplace as you, were, as you were working as a server. Tell me what it was about Oregon wines at that point that made this the place you wanted to eventually come and, and do this. Oh, um, at some point, uh, I, when I looked at college, I was kind of keen on coming out here. My parents had brought us out to the Northwest when I was like seventh or eighth grade. We stayed in Portland and checked out there and I was like, oh, this place is really cool. Uh, so I actually looked at some colleges out here. I looked at Willamette and I looked at Lewis and Clark and I probably would have gone to the University of Puget Sound had I not gotten into Swanee, which is in Tennessee where I went uh, and played soccer there. They had a good soccer program uh, at Puget Sound. Mm -hmm. and I played at Swanee, but like it was appealing because they actually had like a good program. 
Um, and it's funny because I'm like, man, it, it, what if I had gone to Whitman College in Walla Walla? I'd probably be out there hanging out. Like, I would have been in college like, oh my gosh, I can go do this now. You know, I mean, I, I had to wait, you know. Um, but uh, there's no question when I started actively uh, trying to find information about the Willamette Valley, having, you know, poured some of these wines, that, like, it, it was a very appealing and absolutely gorgeous place. Mm -hmm. I still feel that way, man. I, I drive around and just like, this is an incredibly beautiful place. Mm -hmm. That's an inspiring thing, and if we live in a place that makes us happy. Um, so there was something also about um, the nature of the industry here, which seems smaller scale. That, that as I've come to learn, is, is kind of a de facto thing that happens with cool climate viticulture, because it's kind of hard to do on a really big scale. I think there's a lot of potential here to do that, but it's not really being done. Um, anyway, so I was like, I, I don't want to go back to school right away. I mean, I, I just got done with school. I've been doing school for 16 years or whatever it is, you know. And I'm like, I, I, if I like this, I'll go back to school. But it was way more appealing to come to a place like the Willamette Valley. I knew I could live in Portland uh, and commute to wine country. That was another big thing because I didn't want to go to San Francisco. and. Again, I wasn't. There was nothing appealing about working in the California industry to me. Uh, even though now, in hindsight, I'm like, well, there's a ton of small, amazing producers in California doing incredible work. We just don't see them in the marketplace, um, particularly. But yeah, I mean, that's why I was so afraid about taking that job at Erath, because like in my mind, if it was big enough that we had it on our list and it wasn't like a high-end wine, uh, that surely there, that wasn't the kind of place, you know. And in hindsight, I'm like, I think everybody should work at big wineries before they go work for a little estate producer because the the bandwidth of potential knowledge that you can gain is so much different than just saying well this one person likes to make wine exactly this way and that's all we do mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. uh, but yeah it was a, a mixture of the scale and just the my adventurous side wanting to be in this area and, and seeing some appeal and where the valley was located and being an outdoor you know enthusiast and um all of those things really but um again i question all that stuff as to like it, it, whether it was all just a vehicle for me to get here and produce a child and become a father like you know what i mean <laughs> and, and it's it seems that you that you also that the pinot noir was a draw from a fairly early and a focus from you so was that something that was before you got here or was that something that you picked up once you got I think I started, when I started drinking red wines, Pinot Noir was more appealing to me. I mean, I, they weren't the first wines I started drinking, and certainly not uh, good examples, or what I'd call serious <laughs> examples. I mean, I feel like a lot of people still haven't had serious Pinot Noir, and they think they like Pinot Noir. Uh, particularly people from all over the country who are, you know, what I call disenfranchised by the three-tier system, not allowing better wines into these <laughs> markets, uh, more nuanced wines. but. Um, when I got in with William Harrison Imports, which was the importer in uh, D.C., they had a good bit of Burgundy, and they were working with some great restaurants in uh, in the city. And I cruised around with uh, Peter Gaylor, who has the license plate Maynil, which now I get, and at the time I didn't get it. He was like a champagne head. And um, and we would take these wines with names like Chasson Montrachet. I couldn't even say this stuff to some of the best places in, in the city and watch these wine buyers just absolutely geek out about it. And, and Pinot Noir was sort of put up on this pedestal, you mm -hmm. know. 
uh, you know, it's like, oh, what's up with these Michelle Mayen lines? He's like, there's nothing better than Mayen. I'm like, okay, cool. Well, that's good to know. So people who know a lot more than I do are telling me that this is something worthwhile, you know, and it's always been that way for me. I was really fortunate. I mean, with Laurent, we were drinking a lot of domestic wines and looking at stuff. When I got into working at Evening Land and meeting people like Ken and Erica, uh, that was a really fortunate and, you know, not planned for thing where I, because I was around people who introduced me to better stuff, I, I got an education and what was out there. Mm -hmm. And everybody's experience, you know, I joke about it being like a, a fingerprint. No one has had the same wines at the same times with the same people. You know, everybody's is a very unique experience in terms of the wines we've tried, enjoyed, not enjoyed, whatever. It's always very personal. Um, and for me, I was really fortunate to have been around people whose generosity allowed me the opportunity to try more wines and introduce me to styles and places. And again, that pursuit continues to, to grow more rapidly for me. But, um, you know, we talk a lot about the millennials and they're not drinking and they're not going to make any kids. I'm like, it's all doomsday, doomsday. And I'm like, it's not their fault when they start to get it. Good Pinot Noir is not going out of style. Um, you know, there's a reason that this beverage has been put on a pedestal, and I, I think there's only a few places in the entire world that we can achieve balanced versions of Pinot Noir that have that kind of expression that makes people say that kind of stuff. And I think that some of those wines are being made here in the Valley. You know, there's producers here that I'm really inspired by, uh, producers from abroad that I'm really inspired by. Um, and so it, it took, you know, some of those first stages where someone else who was inspired by those wines said, this is where, this is what's going on mm -hmm. with, with red wine, you know. Uh, and that's, you know, again, with my evolution, I made Chardonnay every year I've been in Oregon. 2018 was the first time I produced any for my brand. Uh, so, like, when I quit my day job, I'll make white wine, you know. And uh, now I'm going to bottle my first wine. It's like, well, well, when did you start to, you know, well, I've worked with, uh, you know, the Evening Land Project and then moving in and working with Ken and watching him grow his Chardonnay production and style. And I like to think that we learned a lot of that stuff together. Um, but certainly it's inspiring for me to have been um, a part of this enthusiasm, you know, and then getting, getting the opportunity to learn about some of those wines. So, yeah, Pinot is, um, as it turns out, I think it's, it's supposed to be a challenging red wine to make um, compared to others or whatever. But, you know, for me, it's, it's the wine that I make. And, um, you know, every, my whole experience has been here in the Valley. So while I've had an opportunity to work with a lot of different fruit from the Northwest and stuff, um, you know, I've never been a Cabernet producer in Napa Valley and then moved here and said, man, these Pinots are really hard to make, you know, it's, it's just like what it's what it is, you know. Uh, I feel a lot of anxiety during harvest. That's normal. <laughs> so tell me about the, you mentioned, um, you, you, you decided to start your own label when you started to have an opinion on, on a style and your opinion on what you want to do. Tell me a little bit more about first the opinion on the style and, and, and what you've sought to make, but also just about the logistics of starting your brand, naming it Violin, oh, sure. hitting, the, hitting the marketplace with that. Tell me a little bit about, about that, that process. I thought about the brand name before I started the business. Uh, my son's name is Olin, uh, and the word Vino's in Violin, so it's like this kind of nice combo. And uh, obviously, uh, you know, was a big fan of the Eiffel image, big music lover, and so it, it all felt kind of appropriate. And then. 
you know, I used to remember just like driving around the country and thinking about it, you know. I mean, I, like I was going places, I wasn't just driving, but I, <laughs> but I was in the country and driving. And, and you know, that's the kind of stuff I would think about. Um, you know, the aha moment of, of like what it meant to really be crafting wines from individual vineyard sites is not the experience that I had working in Northwest Wine Company. So when I had that experience with an estate production that had a very specific stylistic model uh, that was making wines that I found to be more soulful, uh, that spoke to me a little bit more, that had a different sense about them, uh, that were more expressive, and mm -hmm. again, a bit more honest in terms of their manufacture, a, a much more straightforward approach in terms of vinification. Um, you know, th that really struck a chord with me. Um, and so, I was like, okay, I, I've been kind of leaning, you know, at first when I was with Laurent, I was like, oh, I should start a brand tomorrow. Like, look at all these brands. I, have, I should have a brand. And then I increasingly got more and more frightened of the idea, you know. I'm talking with his wife. She's like, well, well you better. I'm just like, what do you mean? It's hard to sell wine. Uh, <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> <you> knew? <laughs> it's really easy if you have wine buyers in front of you that really like wine. Um, the, uh, that aha moment was like, okay, now I'm prepared to take the risk because like, I feel more strongly that I, I want to achieve this kind of style and now I can move forward with that. And, um, you know, violin, yeah, it's kind of a personal-ish brand, but I think it's also really universal. And so it kind of is something that people can connect with in their own way. And I never try to get kitschy with the music theme or anything, but... Um, I started my brand really, I'm not going to say unprofessionally, um, per se. Uh, when it came to the winemaking stuff, I, I didn't have to cut any corners, you know. Uh, I knew kind of exactly how I wanted to execute all that. Um, and luckily I had a good space to do it in and we had great energy up there, you know. Human, human energy is a big part of, in my opinion, making wine properly. Um, but, uh, you know, it was like I, I talked to a guy that did some consulting for, you know, the industry, and I was like, I'll buy you lunch. You know, what do I need to do? It's like, well, you got <laughs> to register a name with the, uh, you know, Secretary of State and create a little business. So I was like, okay, Violin Wine LLC, I am a wholesaler of wine, and I got a little corporate business going. Okay. Well, that happened in May of 2013, and by September of that year, like, I was buying grapes with a new business account that I had started. Uh, I made the first vintage. Of course, all that was under the Walter Scott bond. So technically speaking, those wines are owned by their company, and I'm just a custom crushed client on paper, even though I do my work. Like that's the way it it, it works mm -hmm. legally speaking. Um, and so when I when I bottled my first vintage, it went into storage, and uh, you know I still had to get my federal permit as a wholesale. You can get a federal permit as a wholesaler or as a um, uh, a producer and I didn't need the, the bond as a producer so I have a federal wholesalers permit still and that allows me to get an Oregon winery license which also allows me to sell wine directly to people and also to wholesale wines which is an incredibly broad and wonderful license um, and that it just assumes that I have a custom arrangement with a bonded facility in this case it's you know the company in Amity and then you know, I assume control over my product mm -hmm. more than I technically produce it if that makes sense mm -hmm. um, so you know I knew enough about that kind of stuff that I winged it 
And, um, <laughs> you know, I, I'm certainly not running my business with the level of precision that an accountant would be very excited about. Um, but I'm running a debt-free business that I've, you know, generated all the revenue from after my initial investment, which was enough. I had enough money to buy grapes for two years, and I kind of set up, I was like, okay, so how much wine can I possibly make with this money, you know? And uh, that was such a dumb idea. I should have used about two-thirds of that to buy grapes, and the other third toward a, you know, a marketing budget, or, you know? <laughs> I mean, I, hindsight's twenty twenty. Uh, but anyway, it took me a long time to sell through those first wines, but I'm still learning. You know, I was like, guess, here's the deal. Like, I, I, I spent 12 years learning winemaking before I had anything to sell out on the marketplace, and now I've been selling wine on the marketplace for four years, and, you know, I'm learning a lot more about it all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm better at it now than I was last year, and that year I was better than the year before, mm -hmm. and... Um, you know, kind of learning how that, that craft works now also. And as winemakers, it's one of the reasons I still am really intrigued by the work that we do is we do a lot of different types of work. Um, you know, I, I really enjoy my seller time now. Would I want to be a full-time sellerman again? Oh my golly, no. <laughs> the kind of work I used to do, I mean, we had 60,000 square feet. We were managing several thousand barrels, not to mention the hundreds of thousands of bulk wine that was elsewhere. Um, and now, you know, when I started my first vintage, I had 22 barrels of Pinot Noir, you know. Uh, and they got a lot of attention. Oh, I would love, yeah. A lot of attention, you know. But it, it is, it, that attention to detail, I think you'll see it everywhere in the world, is one human can only influence so much. And you can be a really good manager and guide processes with great precision, but a lot of other people are doing the actual execution. My project's small enough, I also do the execution. Um, you know, I believe in that. I believe that the quality of the execution matters, and I know there's a lot of setups where great teams are producing wines together. Um, but when you start to lose the, the decision making of that one influencer, that one important sort of winemaking person, um, is when you start to go away from the, the, the more nuanced kind of product, I think. Um, and I think it's around 15 to 20,000 cases. Like, you know, Josh Bergstrom's team, for example, they, they make somewhere around 15 or 16,000 cases. And that's a, that's a great team led by, you know, a really, you know, talented producer. And so they're executing, mm -hmm. you know. But if, if you doubled the size of that to 50,000, you know, I think you'd have several people who are making important decisions about all the wines all the time. And so you'd have some stylistic divergence there. And they would come back together, and you might have generally a house style, but I think the wines have become more innocuous in, in some sense. Um, and so we're lucky. We have a ton of these kind of producers in Oregon that are, you know, between three and 10,000 cases. And I think, you know, it doesn't always mean the best, but it, it means we have a lot of really unique expressions. And we'll get into the nuance of that here locally, but, like, if you sent 20 of these expressions out, and we're like, these are the most different examples we could find, and put them out there with 20 other Pinot Noirs from California, I think people would be like, yeah, these all seem like they're from Oregon, you know? And uh, I worry a lot about that. Mm -hmm. I, I worry that we're all making the same wines mm -hmm. that um, you know we're all using the same barrels we're all you know sort of approaching things in a similar way and um, that there is kind of this uh, blase middle ground that 80 percent of the wines are kind of fitting into you know um, anyway I, 
and I, I hope that there's there's room for us to still produce more nuanced wines here. Um, and I think that is part of the, the spirit of, of what's going on here. There's a lot of people who are like, I'm done with Pinot Noir. You know, that variety just doesn't work here, you know. And But it's like, so we can grow some Trousseau, and we can grow some Gamay, and we can grow some other stuff. I totally agree with that. I mean, I think the sky's the limit as far as what we can produce here. Um, so we'll, we'll see how that all goes, but... Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not abandoning the, the Pinot Noir ship, not, not yet. <laughs> I think it is really hard to compete in, in a market that's as flooded as ours. Um, and I can understand why it's a lot easier to sell other varieties, which there are so little of. Even the good producers don't have enough to keep, you know, mm -hmm. that particular space on the shelf. So, so I, I do think that's helpful. Um, but, uh, but again, I'm, that's what's inspired me. So how do I take that to the next level? and? and try to reach the next level, I don't know. Sometimes we just need to be, you know, viable businesses. There's <laughs> <laughs> a novel concept. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned earlier uh, that you you're most make most of your wine from, or all of your wine from Eola Amity Hill Scrapes, that's what you prefer, and that was from, from an early stage, that was something that appealed to you. Tell me now, as you've, kind of, as you've kind of grown in the business, have you figured out what it is about those grapes, what is it about those flavors that appeals to you versus other places you can get Pinot Noir grapes? Um, well, I, I have a friend, uh, a guy named Adam Radke, that has a little farm out in Gaston, and it's actually right on the northern border of Yam Hill Carlton, mm -hmm. so technically his site is Willamette Valley AVA, but it's Willikensee soil, low elevation, sort of a classic example of what we talk about with Willikensee soils, and I notice this like stewier fruit, this kind of muddled fruit, con you know, um, character, I often get tea leaf and some other tones. Um, I've done things like, you know, going much heavier with whole cluster use in those wines that produce more fruitiness and more poppy fruit because I feel like it just is kind of more savory. Um, I think there's a lot of, you know, do I think we're making distinctive lovely wines from that site? Yes. Do I think that there's a, um, a tone about that vineyard that we're seeing shine through? Yeah. Is that what we want to do with winemaking? Yes. Um, is it as perfumed? Is it as elegant? Does it have the length? Does it have, um, you know, the fullness, the uh, the density of structure that I get from Sojourner Vineyard? It does not. Um, I think Sojourner Vineyard's a really, really special site. I've seen even in its youth, it behaves with the kind of balance and, uh, you know, expression that I, I'm almost baffled at how it could be that good so early. Uh, it's the site I get the most fruit from. That's, it's a classic example of this area. So, you know, I worked with the Ola Springs at Evening Land. Uh, Laurent worked with a site called uh, Nuestra Sueño, which is now the Simonetti Vineyard. It's right next to a site called Carter, which is one of Ken Wright's kind of flagship sites. You know, Ken Wright is Mr. Yamhill Carlton, mm -hmm. and the two vineyards that make the wines for me that have the best expression are Canary Hill and Carter, uh, classic examples of Southern Eola Amity Hills. Um, there's, a, there's a vibrancy, a sense of vibrancy that I get in the wines that's kind of hard to say, well, that, that's vibrant. You know, like that, you smell that? That's called vibrant. Uh, it's a, it, it's, it's a, again, it, it's a balance between the elements that, that feels more appropriate. We all see very clearly as producers that pHs tend to be higher in Willikensee soil. No issue. 
That is true if you pick them at the same time mm -hmm. as in the old Amity Hills site, which might be a little bit behind it in ripening. Mm -hmm. Yes, I mean, it's going to be a higher pH. So, you know, when I look at what, for example, uh, Brian O'Donnell at Belpont produces versus Tony Soder at, you know, the Mineral Springs Ranch, th those sites are right across the street from each other, very similar elevation. And I think stylistically, they do different things. Mm -hmm. So the wines end up being quite different. Um, the old Amity Hills for me has this sense of moderation, um, particularly uh, as I taste, I, I lean toward liking the Volcanic Soil series, um, and that includes some of the really old stuff in the Coast Range, but um, there's something about um, vines tend to, in my view, um, they're a little more vigorous in the in the basalt-based clays. Uh, they tend to have a little more water holding capacity, and so the vines can can produce a little more fruit. I think it helps open them up. In Dundee, we see this, you know, especially at low elevations. You can you can have a, a significantly healthier crop in terms of yield, and still produce great concentration and power. That that's a huge benefit as a grower. Um, and then when you get into the Eola Hills, you get the same kind of series, but but in more there's rockier pockets and I think you can also get into these uh, you, know, you know directly into bedrock sooner mm -hmm. um, and so I think there's a nice balance in terms of drainage where you still get some of the moisture holding that allows for more vigor but it's a little bit more drained than again some just quote jewelry sites and so it's it's somewhere in between in terms of not being overly vigorous um, and you know again going back to sojourner it's the balance throughout the actual vineyard when you look at mm -hmm. a consistency vine to vine and how they grow um, so when you see kind of th there's a health thing that we we see in the vineyard versus in the wines um, as a producer it's really hard to talk about um, the energy that we see in in uh, fermentation um, or like in a must uh, we can look at figures and say well there's this much yeast assimilable nitrogen so it, it's very happy or whatever that's true uh, if, if the yans are higher, yes, fermentation wants to get going sooner. Um, but it's hard to describe when, when I say like, a, this, this vineyard really behaves. When it comes into the winery, the chemistry is in a sweet spot. It finishes fermentation well with little or no coaxing. Uh, and then in barrel, it, it, it behaves. It, it doesn't tend to go in a weird direction. It stays true to its course and it produces wines of, you know, silkiness, velvety almost. You know, if you've ever read Emil Peignot, it's like, uh, you know, the ultimate compliment to a red wine is suppleness. Uh, which I, I believe if you've achieved suppleness in wines that it means something more than just velvety texture mm -hmm. um, And I just see that more in any Ola Hills sites um, mm. And I think it is a sense of balance I also think that and this map shows it well when you look at our valley, you know The Van Duzer corridor is the moderating influence we have um, The first place it hits is the Ola Hills. It's almost due east of the pocket So no doubt the new Van Duzer corridor they get a, a big influence of that that same effect without the more favorable soil types. Mm -hmm. Likewise, when you get into Dundee, well, you're another 15 to 20 miles further east of this influence. Mm -hmm. And it's a hot pocket of it. It's one of the hottest places in the valley. That, that, that border of the Chehalem Mountains, like where Vidon Vineyard is, we, we used to make the Vidon wines. They were like 
always the first thing in the door. That Arbor Brook, you know, those, those are really, really early and I think ripe, ripe sites. We don't tend to have that, and especially in the last few years, you know, us working with sites all over and still seeing this, it's like you, you look at the benchmark points, you know, when you have a bud burst and the Eola Hills are behind by seven days or eight days, and then, you know, full bloom is, you know, again, now all of a sudden it's 12 days behind full bloom and sites, and you kind of see it creep away and away, and it just stays more moderate. And um, I, I think it's really easy to see those things, look at the dates, look at the stats, and then there's still more. Um, subjective things like when I say that I, I like how the wines behave uh, or you know that uh, the, the, the perfume in terms of the aromatic potential of the wines is better mm -hmm. um, you know I just have been having some interesting discussions about about that subject with other producers and so that would lead me on to some tangents but um, <laughs> like I said I was fortunate to have watched enough wines go through and found so strong a preference toward like, wow, of these Selena lots, this Zena Crown is amazing, but the Domaine Danielle Laurent for me is kind of boring, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. um, and that's a personal preference. I think there's a lot of people that love the richer, riper, sweeter side of the Pinot spectrum, uh, and I just want wines that feel drier than that. Mm -hmm. And I think that we get a little bit more nerviness and snap, and again, that minerality is one of those things that, I mean, you could spend hours debating what on earth we're talking about with that. <laughs> um, but sometimes it's more like, a, like an edginess, a savory a, a kind of line in the wine that is energetic. Mm -hmm. um, and I just sense that more in, in the Ole Amity Hills. I also feel more at home there. It's just kind of been my place. Like I said, the experience I had with Chris back in 06 and uh, you know, spending time at Seven Springs and um, spending time at Walter Scott and uh, all the relationships I've had with some of the producers there has, mm -hmm. has just been really important for me. So. Mm -hmm. Uh, being in Amity now makes a lot of sense for me. It's 10 minutes from here. Most of my sites I can access in 15 minutes. And the more time I spend, you know, with my growers and in the vineyard, the, the better I feel like I am uh, set up to, mm -hmm. to produce the wine in the appropriate way. Mm -hmm. We've talked about this a little bit already, but I'm curious, uh, coming in the industry the way you did, working big producer, even bigger producer, then kind of some gradually smaller producers, uh, all while kind of honing your craft, I'm curious about your winemaking philosophy now. Uh, when it started developing, what you thought your winemaking was philosophy was going to be versus maybe what it is now, and how you describe what you want your philosophy to be? What is your winemaking philosophy? Yeah, um, well, first and foremost, I, I want to have wines that, um, you know, are, are to some extent showcasing either regional specificity, vineyard specificity, uh, but also vintage. Um, you know, as I like to say, as a producer, my job is, um, if if my goal is for you to see vintage and to see sight, mm -hmm. then my, my job is to adjust the lens. Mm -hmm. Uh, so when it comes to, you know, I take the Steve Dorner approach on this and I'm stealing these words from conversations I've had with him, but like I have to be able to in influence making the beverage to be balanced. Because mm -hmm. if the beverage is not in balance, then it won't have any potential to showcase off vintage and, uh, and place. Um, so again, like I make an Eole Amity Hills cuvee, what do I want the Eole Amity Hills to be represented like? Mm -hmm. um, you know, or am I willing to say like, I, I, I hope that this is, is what they're like? Um, 
generally speaking, my philosophy on, on what I can do uh, is, is continues to evolve a lot, but as I like to say, that there's no room for dogma because every vintage, the, the challenge that becomes the big challenge, we have no way to anticipate uh, until the time actually comes. I mean, we wait around all year until September to stamp it, stamp its face on, you know, on the vintage and say, here's what you get now. Mm -hmm. um, and then we have to react. Luckily, I've been in situations both ways, and I don't have any fear about being able to react in a positive way to influence balance. Um, touching on this a little bit before, uh, yeah, I mean, Pinot Noir, freshness, juiciness, mouth-watering, savory, elegant. Mm -hmm. You know, th those are kind of like what I want to achieve with Pinot Noir. Um, but, you know, what do I mean by freshness? Well, like, I'm, I'm way more, you know, in tune to looking at pH and acid in terms of how I make decisions on Pinot Noir and, you know, what I talk about calibrating my palate and stuff. But, um, Sorry, I lost my train of thought. Uh, Talk about sort of freshness in Pinot Noir and, 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 and sort of what you want the what you want Pinot Noir to oh, represent. Uh, well, I touched on this a little earlier. I, I'm as a as a wine drinker, my tastes are evolving dramatically all the time mm -hmm. as I try more and better wines. Mm -hmm and get more inspired by other producers doing other things. I say, oh, is this something that I can maybe achieve in my own wines? Is, is this a direction or a tone that maybe I can achieve? And if so, how do I make subtle changes to go that direction? Because you know, it takes five years to, to figure out if something worked mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or longer, mm -hmm. uh, either in terms of what we're doing in the vineyard or both or in the wines or in the cellar. You know, There's all these things that you do a little thing differently and say, okay, we'll see how that works out. And then we really can't judge it until it's in the bottle years later. Um, but uh, I, I've gotten more and more offended by out, out of balance, I'm not going to call it high, but out of balance alcohol, uh, particularly in white wines. Um, and I just think that it's so easy to be sloppy in that regard and let it happen and then after the fact be disappointed. Uh, and I just, I don't want to be in that situation. Mm -hmm. So when this vintage rolled around and I have the opportunity, and my wines are f finished obviously enough that I know, I have alcohols that are between 12.3 and 12.9 for Pinot Noir this year. Mm -hmm. And I'm excited about it. I, I can't wait to see how these wines age. They have enough balance in my mind. They have all the freshness. They have the fruit aromas that I think feel mature but not overripe. Um, and uh, and I just haven't had any good examples of Pinot Noir from you know ten years ago or fifteen years ago or twenty years ago that was high in alcohol. Mm -hmm. um, you know the best example we, we tried a Ponzi eighty six last harvest or the year before it was twelve point six potential or twelve point six alcohol. Uh, and you see it over and over again. I was just having this conversation with Ben Castile, and he was saying, yeah, every time Myron Redford would break out these wines, you know, those old Amity wines would always show really well, and they were always the lowest in alcohol. And when you look at the 2011 vintage, every bottle you can get your hands on right now is drinking beautifully, and we just, like, have forgotten that it's like, well, they're 12% they're to 12.5, you mm -hmm. know? Um, 
and I just think we've gotten really excited about producing more opulent styles and the market has continued to embrace more opulent styles but if we're really building time capsules which is kind of what I like to talk about doing um, I, I just think that if the ethanol is not in better balance we're, we're gonna make clunky mm -hmm. uh, awkward examples which aren't gonna age favorably and they're not gonna do Oregon any justice if we're really talking about competing with Premier Cru and Grand Cru Burgundy. Mm -hmm. Even though they're making some very rich and ripe styles, particularly the Vintage 15, which, you know, it's kind of like our 19 and that like a lot of people had to drop a lot of fruit. In our case, it saved us this year, but um, I mean, I, I had exceptional fruit in 2019. I'm so excited about the wines. And I think there's just as many people out there who are talking about it being a disaster, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, so stylistically for me, like I, I'm continuing to push that side of it mm -hmm. uh, in pursuing the kind of style that, that I want to see in bottle and that I, I believe will, will age more favorably. Mm -hmm. um, because none of my wines, um, none of my wines aren't in, in my view, ones which shouldn't benefit from some time in bottle. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, not I'm not specifically trying to produce wines in, in order to sell them, you know, nine weeks after they're in bottle. Um, I have to do that sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, we'll see. <laughs> um, I, I just say, you know, again, it keeps changing, it keeps evolving, but uh, with my style, uh, there's a few things I've stayed really true to, and one of those is, you know, no racking during elevage, you know, at least 14 to 15 months. I usually spend at least four to six weeks in tank prior to bottling. Um, you know, those are things which I really think influence uh, the some of the textural qualities in the wine. I don't use a lot of new wood, but I don't use any neutral wood. Mm -hmm. Um, and so those are things I can easily do and say, okay, here's what's happening. Um, here's what's happening now that like I've built that kind of general framework, but people say, well, how do you know, you know, if it's for us? Like, well, I, I will say that in every single situation, uh, logistics will play a role in winemaking. Mm -hmm. And we always have to be, um, again, open to that, particularly with harvest, you know, I, I joke about it all the time. It's like we, we spend all this time, we run samples and we taste juice and we say, that's oh, not ready yet or, oh, it's almost ready and okay, okay, well, we're probably going to pick, you know. And then you say, when can we pick? And, and they say, well, um, you know, today's Tuesday and uh, we, can, we have a time we can pick on Friday um, uh, or then the next time will be Sunday uh, or Monday. And you're like, mm-hmm. <laughs> Great, let's do Monday, you know, or great, let's do, you know, Friday. And it, it ends up being that simple because that's when we can actually achieve the result and we can actually motivate and work with a labor source that can get the work done and uh, we can actually execute. Um, I think the windows are more fine-tuned for cool climate viticulture. It's why it is so challenging. I've, I've seen the difference 72 hours can make, particularly when we have eastern winds and everything's dehydrating. I think most of the time in the last few years that people have made excessively alcoholic wines is, is not because they got overripe. It's just because the grapes dehydrated and you know producers were unwilling to uh, add the water back in. This is, you know, again, that's why I'm like, you can be dogmatic, but if you're making a beverage which is out of balance, that's on you. Mm. That's on you. Uh, we're crafting beverage. Mm -hmm. You know, there's nothing. Who was it? Uh, Craig Broadley. Have you have you been down to the Broadleys? Not yet. Love those people to death. Um, down Eugene. They're in Eugene. Monroe. Monroe. Yeah, yeah, just just north. That's right. That's right. Um, 
Anyway, wonderful family, and, and someone was telling me that Craig said this. I, I just Craig's an amazing storyteller, uh, and uh, and someone was like, "Yeah, it's such an art what you guys do." And I think he like, you know, begrudgingly had to like correct and be like, "No, no, ours is a craft." Mm -hmm. You know, it, in artwork, you can stop what you're doing when you're tired, and come back to it. You know, when the work's at the end of the day, my mural is not finished, you know, but I'm going to work on it next week and we'll keep working until it's finished. No. You know, when the grapes need to get picked, if you want to produce wines of a certain tone, like the time is now. Mm -hmm. um, and it is a craft, you know, and as I tell people all the time, I respect the craft very much. I work to get better at what I do, and, um, and I do think the execution of winemaking matters in terms of the fine details, um, at least on, on this level, you know, when we're trying to make more nuanced beverage. Um. I want to talk about a little bit about that, that relationship, the vineyard relationship, since you're someone who you don't own any of your own grapes, you're right. working with vineyard. Tell me about that relationship between a, a finding the grapes you want and then working with the people who have them to make sure that they're what you want them to be and, and, and you're getting them off the vine at the time you want, like you said, and they're being farmed the way you want them to be farmed. Yeah. Um, man, I, again, I, I, consider myself really lucky in the relationships that I have been able to cultivate and people I know and people who are willing to do business with violin even on a relatively small scale um, you know it the, the the sense of partnership the idea of partnership is a really big thing for me and well, I talk about it a lot um, with only one exception all the fruit I work with is um, fruit that is only to be sold mm -hmm. It's not fruit which is meant to be vinified and, and then the product of wine is to be sold. So I'm not working with producers who have big vineyards and say, well, we sell a little bit. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Justice is that way, except technically Justice Vineyard is owned by Ted and uh, Pat, so they sell to Bethel Heights and, you know, mm -hmm. okay. Uh, but it's a real honor to do business with them. I've, I've known the Castiles for a long time, since I was six. Uh, you know, my winery license was under the Justice Vineyard uh, from 2013 until 2018. Uh, and in 2017, they were willing to sell me uh, the, what they call the Delta block. So as soon as they had fruit, I said, absolutely. And I've moved over to the, the, the DDW block, which is the one right behind uh, the hill from Walter Scott. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, so that's a relationship that, you know, again, I had for a while and, and worked toward. And, you know, my brand existed before they did business. Again, Adam Radke, he's a friend. I, I'm the only one that vinifies fruit from his site. Um, in my first year, you know, I worked with Laurent and he sold me some DDL fruit. Um, now, uh, you know, Michael Lundeen, who is the general manager and winemaker for Walnut City Wine Works, he manages a little vineyard site called Sylvia's, which, you know, St. Joseph's Orchard in McMinnville, they farm all of the vineyards that they work with. Um, and so we basically split that Pinot. Uh, that's Yola Hills, just north of Steve Dorner's property, uphill from Methvin family. Um, you know, we've got the Coosa Farm, mm -hmm. uh, Kevin Chambers' mm -hmm. project, and I've known Kevin for a long time. I didn't expect that I would have the opportunity to work with him so early. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we have a good relationship, and we look at it as partnership. Mm -hmm. That's so important to me, um, and and that's really what I seek. So I'm not working with any part partners who don't already have in mind that I'm trying to produce 
good examples of serious Pinot Noir. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I spend enough time in the sites that uh, they know that I'm I'm checking out what's going on, mm -hmm. and we already have an idea about. Okay, look, we, we know we're not going to do this, 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 and this, but when we decide to do this and this, like let's all have input about it, you know, mm -hmm. and let's not be dogmatic about it and say, well. Our crew is done with this, this, and this this week, so next Tuesday we're going to come through and then we're ready to do that here. Um, but, you know, leaf pulling in a year like this, we decided to do more of because the mildew pressure was high in July. And that's an easy, sensible decision to make if we can execute it in the right timing. And the scale of the farms I'm working with is small enough. Uh, Sojourner is the biggest site that I have now. I worked with Denny Peso as early as 2011. He and his wife owned Eola Springs with uh, Jim Thomas. They sold it to Judy Jordan in 2015. Mm. So in 13, 14, 15, I worked with Eola Springs. And then when I had the opportunity to work with Sojourner after he focused solely on that, you know, again, I moved uphill with the relationship, not because, oh, there's another terroir up there or whatever. Um, and again, Denny has been in the game for a long, long time. He is only interested in partnership because he has the business of selling grapes to producers. Um, and so we all know that, you know, hey, Denny, like we're paying you by the acre and we all want to achieve the top quality here. So um, we already have that in mind, you know, and again, Angel Martinez with Advanced Vineyard Systems, they've, they've only recently finally certified that site as organic, which is huge. The expression of the wines is already so good that you know, as, as you develop a vineyard, I think it's way more justifiable in using different types of conventional methods. And then when you have more mature vines, you can get away with a lot of different things in the vineyard that we might consider more holistic. Um, but, you know, the vines have to grow first. <laughs> and there's other stuff growing around them. They don't grow that well. So it's like, what do you want to do? Get in there with a hand hoe? Okay. Do you have organic methods? You can really hurt trunks. So there's a lot of stuff like that. Um, a lot of it's just evolution, you know. Ken Paolo got me fruit from Eola Springs and was able to work that out. You know, I'd already known Denny, but when he said, hey, you know, there's some extra fruit here, I, I said, that's great. And, and jokingly, like, Ken and Erica have gotten me the best fruit of every vintage that I've ever worked in this game and ensured that, like, my my quality is high because I have good inputs, you know? Mm -hmm. So I worked with their little vineyard, Clotus Oiseau, in 14 and 15. Uh, this year they leased Dennis Lumen's site after he passed away um, and had it farmed to the highest standard and dropped a tremendous amount of fruit in order to make sure that we could actually achieve a vintage there. And I think it was a financially difficult situation and uh, I made one of the most magical wines I've ever produced from that site and I feel really that there's a strong emotional thing going on there with all that energy so that, that's what I mean this kind of stuff like continues to be more inspiring for me like I care more about it now and, and when I say it's the fabric of my business it's the platform on, on which my business stands there's absolutely no question in my mind um, you know and the beauty of it is, like, it's 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 pretty much handshakes, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So we've talked quite a bit. Uh, you've you brought up a lot of uh, sort of issues you're seeing in, in Oregon wine right now. Things things you've seen change in, in the time you've been here. You talked about sort of homogeneity. Worried about people making some more products, some more way, um, and how to protect Oregon and protect its brand. So tell me about what you're seeing, what you've seen change in Oregon wine, and, and kind of what you see coming down the road. 
Well, I, I was here when everybody uh, took an about face on their pricing in 2008. Um, <laughs> and when I say that we have a fragile market here, I mean the U.S. economy, the global economy is perhaps more fragile than we give it credit for. And wine's not going to go out of style, but um, I think I thank my lucky stars every day that I'm producing wine in the market worldwide, which is the best market for selling wine. Uh, the fact that I can get, you know, $55 a bottle for wine, and this, you know, my top end wine, uh, is kind of amazing when, like, I remember being here and, like, I couldn't believe that all of Ken Wright's wines were $50, you know, <laughs> and now everybody's got three-figure wines and, and all of that stuff. I think those wines are selling very, very slowly, and I don't think there's some amazing market for it. So I'm more conscientious about trying to offer value in my products and continue to do that because I think hopefully it'll keep me a little more insulated from some of those fragile market-related mm -hmm. fluctuations. Mm -hmm. So I was here for that. Um, obviously, in the last few years, there's been a tremendous influence, uh, well, a tremendous, um, what should I say, uh, enthusiasm for planting um, and so there there is a lot of fruit that is going to need to find a home and one of the things about vinifera that makes it really um, unique is it, it's worth nothing at all if it doesn't become wine beverage you can't go out and sell them at the market and expect people to buy them and make any money doing it if you're not getting you know several thousand dollars for a ton of grapes here in Oregon like you're not cutting your costs and and that puts a lot of burden on producers to turn these things into dollar bills like I I, I can see how someone might argue that growers who sell grapes to people like me are leveraging our businesses they're just leveraging us away you know but I'm like until I sell any wine you don't get paid anyway <laughs> period you know <laughs> Um, so it is a give and take and it is a partnership. I mean, even estate producers buy a lot of fruit and that's going to keep happening. I think what we're going to see is, um, is as the market goes like that, if, if the supply continues to go up, that you know, naturally the demand will go down. I don't think it's an endless ceiling, but I do think what's going to happen is there's going to be some great value out there for the consumers. Mm -hmm. um, and whether or not we can continue to promote some of the best wines in North America at the top dollar from or you know from the Willamette Valley for Pinot Noir, while at the same time offering the kind of value in Pinot that we now offer for Pinot Gris. I mean, Pinot Gris in the marketplace is like no one has ever been disappointed with a bottle of Oregon Pinot Gris. It's always like 12 to 15 bucks. It's really fresh, fruity tasting. It's easy to drink. Probably some residual sugar. Yum. I mean. No one's ever disappointed with that. Whereas, like, they could be very disappointed spending thirty-five dollars on a on a Chardonnay that was gross and flabby and too much sweet vanilla, whatever. Like, it was like, why are these wines so expensive? You know, why are they so expensive? Um, so, I, I think Oregon needs to be careful that way. But uh, you know. I, I don't think I've analyzed that the way that others have, so uh, I don't really consider my opinion nearly as, uh, you know, broad in, in that sense. Um, I also don't need to compete in that same way mm -hmm. if I continue to produce these wines on a small scale and work on a model which is a higher percentage of direct-to-consumer then it's more about cultivating a relationship with my customer base mm -hmm. 
and ignoring the rest of the noise. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I kind of see it both ways. I'm really curious um, about when, when you look at this valley, we're still only talking about like the north 30% of it. And even that, we're only talking about stuff that's really on the west side of the Willamette River. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a few big projects out there um, and that's where David Lett thought, maybe I should plan out here. I think the further you get from the Van Duzer, the more tricky it gets. Mm -hmm. But there's absolutely no question, if you wanted to go big scale on a Chardonnay project and sublimity and plant, you know, 200 acres of Chardonnay on a grass seed farm that's perfect jewelry soil at a slight slope at 600 feet, go big scale, do it that way and like really craft wine but on a bigger scale. Mm -hmm. I think the sky's the limit for that stuff. I, I think there is more room for a lot of that, that kind of stuff where you bring value into the marketplace at high-end quality. Mm -hmm. There's no question we're just scratching the surface um, when it comes to stuff like that. Um, and I think that there's so much plantable land, it's scary. You know, uh, if if you want to be in Ribbon Ridge, it's not going to be very uh, viable anymore. If you're going to be in Dundee Hills, like you better be willing to pay seventy five thousand dollars an acre. You know, but uh, but when you look at uh, south of Monmouth or in the hills around Monroe or um, you know anywhere in that eastern part of the valley, and again the sublimity area up there. Uh, or even as you go north into the Banks area, which is marginally cooler back there. I mean, the Coast Range foothills, the sky's the limit. I mean, there's nothing. There's nothing planted in there. Um, and, you know, we're still really, really tiny. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't know. I, I just think when you, when you see the skills and the, the mentality that bigger companies have who are used to doing bigger scale work, um, you know, there's a lot of potential here. Mm -hmm. um, and that's when it, it seems like it's not that expensive. If you want to talk about what the cost of developing a 100-acre project in Sonoma County is, mm -hmm. or Russian River Valley, mm -hmm. versus Monmouth, mm -hmm. I mean, it's nothing. Mm -hmm. So I still see great potential. And like I said at the beginning, I, I think the Willamette Valley is really special. Um, and I think, you know, as 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 we all get older, I, I do think water as a resource is going to become a, a big talking point for us in the in the world, and we dry farm here. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, everything I work with is dry farm. I know a lot of people irrigate and pump water, and they're like crazy because then you can really stack the dollars. But um, you know, that is a very unique situation going on in in, in the world to be able to dry farm. I, I just read about. Uh, Gosh, what's the guy's name? He was from, he was an attorney in Portland. He'd been hanging out out in Walla Walla. The Oregon Wine Press just, just did this one. And he, he's planted these grapes up in the Blue Mountains mm -hmm. at like 2,000 feet. <laughs> Haven't seen the story yet. Oh, I've, I've got it. Uh, that was like the most exciting thing I've read in the Wine Press for a long time because I, I talked with Trey uh, from Sleight of Hands. I used to do a lot of business with some guys up there, so I, I built a few relationships and seen the Savane project with Norma Gibbon. And, you know, it's such a different world out there. We're talking about Oregon, you know. Um, very different Oregon. Very different Oregon, but man, the, and I was like, is there any hope for dry farming here? 
is there any hope? And the Walla Walla Valley is really unique as you go from south to north in terms of how much rainfall they get. It's dramatic how mm -hmm. quickly it changes. And then you go into the Blue Mountains out there on the north side, and, and they're talking about having relatively adequate water supply and potentially dry farming, like way out in eastern Walla, you know? And that's where I'm like, that's, that's the future of marginal vinifera, which is often the places where we find, you know, the most, you know, amazing products. So I'm not worried that it's going to get, you know, for me, the hot vintages are way more difficult to capture that sense of freshness that I want. Um, but, uh, you know, my 15 vintage, I feel strongly is a very classic feeling vintage. And I've tried some absolutely horrible examples from the Willamette Valley. I mean, wines that I, I can't even try to drink. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a disaster. It, it makes, it, it really, it makes me upset. I, I get so upset about these styles, you know, where you're like, wait a minute, so are Californians making more elegant Pinot Noirs than we are in the Willamette Valley now? I don't know. I think that there's great producers everywhere, and I, I do think that you have to look at it on a producer-to-producer -producer basis, mm -hmm. and there's great potential out there in a lot of different areas, and um, there's a lot of accidentally good wines, and there's a lot of consistently great wines. Who was it? Uh, what's that guy? He's a blogger. Um, he came to an event we did, a G3-sponsored event. Uh, they do like a wine conversations, and it's kind of a Dion-focused thing, but we taste some great wines. And they, they always invite the, some speakers to share their industry perspective. And um, One Wine Dude, that's his name, he's, he's got mm. a blog. Mm. I can't remember. But he, he made a great point, which I believe too. And he was like, there's really only three categories in our industry. <laughs> uh, you're either new, you're classic, or you're out of business. <laughs> you know, and every time I tell her, I'm like, I know which one I want to be, <laughs> you know. And so I, I, I'm not under the impression that, that Pinot Noir is going out of style, but I'm also not trying to chase any trends. Mm -hmm. um, I, I believe that, um, you know, there's a reason that the monks were cultivating this in such a precise way that uh, it inspired people to continue doing it. and. Um, you know, people take that real, real seriously in, in certain places, and I think if we take it equally seriously here that we'll find we can produce really exceptional beverages also. Um, but I, I don't think that's going to happen consistently every year with every producer, but, you know, there's, there's a handful of folks around here that, you know, really inspire me and I, I think do, do great work. So I like to hang out more with those folks and uh, learn from them and, and talk more with them about what they're up to. Um, and I'm really inspired about more old vines, you know, Laurent bought Highland in 07 and, uh, you know, having worked with some of those old vine blocks you know back in the day it's just uh, it's a different level I mean people talk about oh well I like some young vines it's like well that's really easy to say if that's all you have mm -hmm. yes like we'll go talk about how much we like them it's great <laughs> but the depth of tannin the feel of, of wines that come from older vines at lower density there's there's something to it and um, yeah I think as more people have access to that as more good producers have mm -hmm. access to those vines mm -hmm. that the overall quality of what we're doing here can continue to, to go up you know mm -hmm. I don't think I know that there's certain wines specifically from Oregon that have inspired me over the years, but like, you know, when I hear about these wines that fared well in international competition, I was like, you mean Fifth Leaf? You know, I'm like, those were babies when those guys were making these wines. And so I know those wines weren't as good as they can be now. Mm -hmm. 
and they were enough to like wow people. So I think considering we're much better viticulturalists now, uh, you know, or have a lot more experience and there's a lot more people who have done trial and error work and, uh, you know, Ted Castile, for example, who I get to work with, it's like, you know, those guys were setting the standards for a lot of these things. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, it's, it's inspiring what those folks are doing and how they've developed this industry in such a thoughtful way. I mean, mm -hmm. the Sokol Bossers in the 70s, the laws that they set up to protect this idea of integrity and quality is, is really way ahead of the, any other North American wine growing region. Uh, and so I trust those guys in moving forward, you know, to an extent where I'm like, oh, maybe we should do all like Willamette Valley labeling, and you know, I'm kind of on board with that. Um, of course, like I'm, I'm a 100% Willamette Valley producer, so it's really easy for it's me to say that. For you, yeah. No, <laughs> but like I, I understand. It's like if you uh, when Wagner decided. I'm not going to take these smoke tainted grapes mm -hmm. uh, last 2018 mm -hmm. harvest. Mm -hmm. I'm cynical enough to believe that it was more like a, hey, are you guys changing your laws up there? Do you want my business mm -hmm. or don't you? Because I can easily take my economy somewhere else if Oregon doesn't want to play nice. And I can assure you all of those farmers want to do business with people who want to buy grapes from them. Mm -hmm. Whether it's in California or shipping wine to you know Asheville, North Carolina, they get made at the Biltmore, whatever it is. Like Napa's been doing that stuff forever. Mm -hmm. And I agree, like we should be getting tax revenue. Okay, that's fine, like let's work out the logistics on that, but I, I just don't think we want to do anything that's going to tie up the hands of people who have economy and need, you know, and it's one thing to be a Willamette Valley producer and outprice your own grapes in the marketplace. Yeah. Oh, well, man, I had a bumper crop this year, but I sure can't sell them to those producers because they're used to getting $1,500 a ton Umpqua Valley Pinot Noir. Hmm. They don't want to buy my $2,800 a ton Willamette Valley Pinot Noir because I have these restrictions about how we can label it now, you know, and so I'm, I'm kind of living that live when it comes to what we, what an individual farm needs to do to be successful, you know, and I, I feel really strongly about the nature of sustainability is, is more specific to an individual business in its entirety than to just say, well, did you... Did you use a particular chemical mm -hmm. one time or, or whatever? Mm -hmm. You know, it's like this, uh, I love that it's low input viticulture and analogy and you know, you can take that into the wine. I think that's a really conscientious thing. It's all like for the best intentions, but like there's a really crucial eye right there. It's input. There's inputs. <laughs> I still do stuff, you know? And I, I just, it drives me crazy that sometimes we advertise as though, like, not doing something is, is a good thing. <laughs> well, I don't do those things. It's like, well, that actually requires work and effort and skill and knowledge, you know? Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm a little jaded at this point. <laughs> Well, you're aging into classic now, right? So, that's right. That's right. That's right. Um, wow. I've been jaded enough, but uh, no, I mean, I've been a rogue operator for a while now. If I had stayed with Laurent another couple years, you know, maybe bumped into a winemaking role somewhere. And, and I do, like, my little economy here is what it is. Like, I'm good to my partners and stuff, or try to be, but I, I do regret not affecting the industry in a bigger way, like working for a house and being involved mm -hmm. in some of these things, and, and really having a broader market reach and, and affecting things and having more camaraderie with colleagues and stuff and having 
having a bigger impact, you know. I kind of regret being such a rogue operator sometimes, but but I can't really conceive of having a boss ever again. So <laughs> it's great. <laughs> well, on that note, what do you see as you look ahead for yourself and for violin, say, in the next decade? Um, well, I you know I have um, I have some thoughts in the short term, uh, mostly just that uh, you know I, I share a facility now and it works out great. But if anything, I'm probably the least good sharer. <laughs> Uh, and that's on me. Um, and so I'm really eager to have a space which is kind of violin space where I can do things exactly when and how I want to do them. Um, you know, it's just more efficient for my time. And uh, also, I just I feel like you do need to cultivate that energy around the wines in a specific way. And it's really, really hard in, in shared space. Uh, the only thing I really manipulate in winemaking is temperature. And so if there's multiple needs in that regard, then you know the, the main thing that I want to influence becomes a real challenge and I just don't want to ever compromise my quality in any way. Uh, so I'm, I'm eager to kind of figure out how to make that happen while still being, you know, i.e. like not asking for investment help. You know, I'm, I'm a little stubborn about that. I have people who've offered and if I knew exactly a plan that worked, maybe I could put something together and then I'd be happy to take some money. But it's like, I don't want to just end up with a pile of money and then feel like I owe a bunch of people something. Uh, so I haven't been very sophisticated about that yet. Uh, so that's a big part of it. In the short term also, you know, growing my brand a little bit. Like I said, I'll bottle Chardonnay under violin for the first time mm -hmm. in January with my 18 Pinots. And um, I'm really excited to expand the brand's, you know, breadth a little bit. I think white wine making is way more challenging than red wine making. So for me, it's it's been a culmination of more craftsmanship um, that I'm excited about too. And it's just a lot of fun for me. But uh, I think it, it does give more to the brand in terms of uh, being out there. Uh, so you know, I think. I can do all my winemaking personally, probably up to that kind of 2,500 case level. Uh, if you get much higher than that, you know, you need to really look at how you divide and conquer, whether it's someone else doing most of the wholesale work that I do, uh, whether I still host appointments or, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. I, I know where I'm best served in terms of what my best skills are so you know and I also know which things I don't do that well and, and it would be better if someone else was doing them so that's a big transition for me I mean my wife wants to start doing some some things and she already helps out with some marketing and events and stuff so that's huge um, but I think there's these little kind of volume scales in, in the wine biz where you know, you can scale to this big and I can pretty much do everything and, and maybe there's a potential like profit thing going on. Uh, and then when you get to that next level, it's like, well, this requires this and this. And, and perhaps like now the level's like that still the same. And then when you get to that next level, all of a sudden you're, you know, really supporting economy. It would make me really excited to get my business to a point where I can actually support someone else's life, you know, I mean, that, that, that's a huge responsibility, but it's also something that I think is important if I'm going to generate economy to also have the opportunity to, you know, teach someone as an apprentice and pay them and give them a lifestyle and know that my business is doing enough to support more than one family, you know, mm -hmm. and that's for me something that I've grown more into, you know, being excited about. Um, at the end of the day, winemaking is a pretty selfish work. I mean, 
I've always felt bad about that. I, I wanted to get involved in teaching or writing, and um, and here I am, like crafting beverage, you know, and, and then I sell to people who are well off enough to be able to afford and, and drink good beverage. It's a pretty selfish little cyclical thing. I mean, I really enjoy the intellectual aspect of it. There is some art, there is some science. Like, I can be outside in these beautiful places, hanging out with great people, tons of good energy. I like my lifestyle. But at the end of the day, I mean, it's not like I'm doing heart surgery or, uh, you know, helping kids learn how to read or, um, you know, doing more noble things. Mm -hmm. um, so I do kind of feel like there's some level of responsibility that I have to get to a level where I, I'm perhaps doing more to do some of those things. Like, I mean, I coach my son's soccer team. I'm involved in other stuff. But, um, you know, I... I've gotten more to the idea of like, well, maybe if teaching something I wanted to do, you know, long term, I'll have the opportunity to teach about this thing mm -hmm. or write about this thing. Because, um, so I don't know. That's that's the one thing that that we're doing here, where it's like I can think about, oh, here's what I want to do with my brand, and it's like it's all very self-serving, and it's like not that like morally, you know, commanding. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> So, I mean, you guys are in the university setup, which is like something I could have seen for myself when I first was in school and doing stuff. So I, I still think about that. I mean, I, uh, we'll see. Mm -hmm. Still time. Still time. There's still time. I mean, I, I just got done my 15th vintage in Oregon and, uh, you know, seventh for violin now, which is crazy. And, um, it, it just feels like we're kind of getting started, you know, where like now I have 30 years to, to really get better at this, mm -hmm. you know, uh, and every year like is an adventure. We get to learn something every year and, and now I have some partners who, you know, are in it with that long-term goal and so we'll, we'll really get to see this stuff happen mm -hmm. together, you know. Um, yeah, the Cusa Farm project, I can't say enough amazing things about Kevin and Carla. Um, and getting to work with them and, and see the work and passion and professionalism and experience they've put into developing this project. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing when Laurent, you know, moved next door to Willa Kenzie, you know, he had spent 10 years with Joel Myers doing all these experiments before deciding, well, I think here's what we'll plant first mm -hmm. and at this density and boom, uh, and we'll farm it like this, you know. I mean, it, and it's really cool to see, you know, Ted Castile, same thing. They, they farmed Bethel Heights for 20 years before they planted Justice, so they had already kind of said, okay, these are some things that seem to be working, you know. Um, and I think we're kind of fine-tuning that now where we're going back the other direction. A lot of people are doing Masal selections now, which I really believe in. In every case, I have mixed clones that go into Pinot Noir fermenters uh, from either the same block of mixed clones or from separate blocks that we ferment together. And I can't say enough that I, I believe we're making more expressive, more interesting, more nuanced, more balanced wines mm -hmm. that way. And when I first started with Laurent, it was like we were bottling a state triple seven from X, Y, and Z client. And it's like, I, I can promise you it was confusing to the customer. <laughs> you know, we have to talk about clone because we have to make decisions in plant. We, we, we have to. Mm -hmm. But let's talk about site. I mean, you know, the, the vines are a vehicle. Uh, and so we have to choose our vehicles when we plant. But we see how they behave against one another. But is that really the... I don't want to talk about that, you know. I mean, it's important, and I get it, I have opinions about it, but like, I don't want to talk about that stuff. I want to talk about site expression and what that means. And um, anyway, that was another, another divergence, but... Uh,
requests says, actually all the questions I have for you, is there, is there anything we didn't cover that we should have covered? Or is there anything I didn't ask that I should have asked? Um, I don't think so. I, I know I rambled a little bit. Um, we, we appreciate the rambling. That actually is one of the better parts of the interview. So no apology needed there. Yeah, no, I, uh, you know, I, like I said about like the market and, and how the business will go in, in the Willamette Valley, uh, you know, this idea of, of the industry, like, I love how many people are employed by the industry now, mm -hmm. and it's fantastic. Um, what I don't know is, is whether we're talking about profitable businesses, mm -hmm. and we're fortunate to have that economy in our little, you know, I've watched McMinn, I've been here since 05, you know, and watching what, what's happened here is, is mostly as a result of tourism and, and this industry mm -hmm. and obviously there's been some marketing and grant money and stuff but but what's what's giving the town that energy to do that is very much this industry mm -hmm. uh, and any little town anywhere in the country would be like thank goodness you know it's like I don't want to be a part of a dying little town mm -hmm. like I want to be a part of a growing town that's having growing pains and figuring out how to take it to the next level and be a 70,000 person community in 20 years um, you know that's all that's all good but um, you you see a lot of stuff where it's you know how many millions to produce the hundreds of thousands and so you can have revenue positive businesses on a yearly basis but if you really want to talk about the investment like the idea of profitability is is, mm -hmm. is laughable mm -hmm. and that's all good because it's promoting local economy and those people are supporting local businesses and and all of that but then you know there's there's people out there who are trying to be profitable and who do want to try to value land and potentially look at owning and, and farming land. And it's like, is it possible to do without, you know, a major investment from some other way? And we always joke, it's like, well, you, you know, how do you make a little money in the wine business with a lot from another business? Um, and that's kind of true for everybody. I mean, I obviously had some money to start my little brand, you know, it wasn't millions of dollars or anything, but, um, you know, it's, it's true you have to have something to start with but you just wonder a lot and I've heard the stance that like only 30% of Oregon wineries are profitable so I wonder what that means for our industry long term because if you have two-thirds of an industry which could easily pack up shop and not worry about it financially that it again the fragility of that structure and all of those people who are employed are at the mercy of whether or not they actually have it together to sell those products mm -hmm. Um, and so I, I feel that pressure in my own business and I just wonder, you know, is a lot of the West Coast wine industry that way? And again, there is no one way to skin the wine business cat, as I say, but, um, you know, you look at some of that stuff and you just wonder, man, how, how what is the, the true strength of, mm -hmm. of the economy mm -hmm. that, that we're creating here? Absolutely. So, but it's a good one. It's an awesome industry. I've enjoyed being a part of it. And uh, yeah, like I said, I feel like I'm at the beginning, so we'll see. Well, excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time today, yeah. for your answers and your stories and your rants and tangents. No worries. And yeah. we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson.
producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.